Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And uh, we are going to get back into uh, our study here of this very interesting chapter. And uh, in many ways, it's a very provocative chapter uh, in light of the rise of anti-Semitism in our country and uh, in our world. And uh, if you've been watching the news, which I know you all do, you hear about these um, acts of violence, these acts of hatred that have been seeming to, to, to um, be coming on a more in, you know, quicker uh, and more volatile basis. And so uh, I think there's, uh, people's interests are piqued about, hey, what's up with Israel and what's up with the Jews and why are there people out there that, that uh, have an issue with them? And so... Um, Last week we addressed the subject, hey, are, are the Jews uh, the bane of the universe or are they the blessing of the universe? And uh, hopefully that title captured your attention and uh, you, ple- you, were pleasantly, uh, you were pleasantly surprised or to hear that yes, no, they're not a bane, they are a blessing. That, that God told uh, them that they would be and told us that they would be and so this morning we're going to continue looking at the nation of Israel. And what does the Bible say about how the Jews fit into God's plan of salvation? And so we're going to pick up where we left off, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and we're going to be reading through verse 32. Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to dive back into your word and uh, to consider something that's very relevant um, to our uh, lives and to our society in which we live. And so I pray, Lord, that we would listen well, that your spirit would uh, illuminate our minds to understand what Paul meant by what he said here and uh, how... uh, as Christians, our destiny is intrinsically um, uh, connected with them. And so we should care deeply about the future of Israel because their future in many ways is our future as well. And so I pray that you'd bless our time in your word now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the many books I remember being exposed to growing up in a Christian home was a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I'm assuming some of you have read that. How many of you guys have read that book, The Hiding Place, a classic uh, Christian book? It's a true story of the Ten Boom family. Uh, Two spinster sisters and their elderly father, all committed Christians who lived in a tiny house above their watch shop in Holland. And when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands during World War II, the Ten Boom family felt compelled to help the Jews escape the Gestapo by hiding them in a secret room that they had specially built for that purpose in their home. And it's estimated that they were able to save the lives of some 800 Jews before they were betrayed and uh, ratted out and arrested and transferred to separate concentration camps. Sadly, Corey was the only one in her family who survived, and after her release in 1944, she spent the rest of her life traveling around the world telling her story and sharing the gospel. Well, early on in the book, Corey recounts what it was like when 
Jews were being rounded up by the Nazis in her community. And this is what she wrote, and I quote, one day as father and I were returning from our walk, we found the groat market cordoned off by a double ring of police and soldiers. A truck was parked in front of the fish mart. Into the back were climbing men, women, and children, all wearing the yellow star. Father, those poor people, I cried. Those poor people, father echoed. But to my surprise, I saw that he was looking at the soldiers now forming into ranks to march away. He said, I pity the poor Germans, Corey, for they have touched the apple of God's eye. Well, Father Tim Boom knew God's word because that's an exact quote from the Old Testament. This is how God describes his chosen people, the Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse nine. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Now, obviously, the apple of the eye is the pupil, right? The most important part of our eye, and that's why we protect our eyes when things happen, and we, we want to keep our eyes safe, uh, and so he likens his, his people, the, the nation of Israel, to the apple of his eye. He's very protective of them, and in fact, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 says this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In other words, you mess with Israel, you mess with God. And that's why every nation that has sought to destroy Israel has either gone out of existence or been greatly diminished from the ancient Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Germans, and the modern day Arab nations. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, why God has blessed our nation, because historically, albeit not perfectly, we have stood by Israel and remained her staunchest ally. Genesis 12, 3 couldn't be clearer. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. So if you want to be on the winning side, right, you side with Israel, because that's God's team. And so, uh, thankfully, we have had that uh, commitment, for the most part, amongst our leadership uh, in our country. That last part of that Verse Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. It's the, it's the tail end of the Abrahamic covenant found there in Genesis chapter 12. And I want you, I want you to turn back there for a moment with me. Genesis chapter 12. I think it's important that we view these, uh, this covenant together. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. This was when God plucked Abram, uh, out of all the other nations of the world, he was a pagan uh, just like everyone else. Uh, there were no Jews up to that point. Everyone was a Gentile. And so Abram was the first Jew because God chose him to be the father of the nation of Israel. And this is the covenant or the promise that he made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This initial promise that God made to Abraham involves three things. It involves a land. He told him, hey, I want you to go to the land, the, the land of Palestine. That's going to be your land. It also involves a seed that, that you are going to have descendants that will be uh, as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore. And uh, you're going to be a blessing. And I'm going to use your nation, I'm going to use you and your people to be a blessing uh, to 
uh, the entire world. And so that covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants was an unconditional covenant. Turn over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, and here uh, we have the covenant reiterated and actually confirmed with a, a typical sacrifice that was made whenever a covenant was made back in that, those days, uh, the two people making that covenant would, would go through a little ritual together. And uh, I wanna read that ritual uh, to you, verses one through uh, 11, uh, essentially uh, talk about this, this, this um, Reiteration of the promise, verse five, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? How do I know you're gonna keep your promise? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. That's a lot of stuff that they're gonna be sacrificed in here. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then the fourth generation, they will return here. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now notice this, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of, the Egypt, of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the, and, and the uh, Rapham, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now, don't miss the point here. When it came time to perform that ritual, when typically the two people making that covenant would walk a figure eight together through those pieces of sacrificed animals, what was Abraham doing? He was sleeping. And God came in the form of this flaming torch, a smoking oven with a flaming torch, and he appeared and he passed through those pieces all by himself to symbolize that this was a unilateral covenant. In other words, this was an unconditional covenant, that that this covenant wasn't about Abraham and God, it was about God. And whether Abraham kept up his side of the bargain or not, God was gonna keep his side of the bargain. And so again, this is more about God's promise to Abraham than anything else. And so this was an unconditional covenant that God promised to fulfill regardless of what Abraham and his descendants did. It was not only an unconditional covenant, but it was also an eternal covenant. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17, just a couple pages over. Here we find... Uh, God meeting with Abraham once again and giving him the sign or the symbol of the covenant, which was circumcision. And so he describes that um, there in the first few verses. Um, Notice he says uh, in verse four, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, here it is, for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I'll give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for and what? Everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now God's unconditional, eternal covenant or promise to Abraham has been partially fulfilled in what's known as the new covenant. Look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is all hopefully, uh, you'll see in a moment, helpful background for our text today. Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, it's the foundation uh, on which our text today and Paul's words are, are based. Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 37. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is the sticky part of your Bible, right, where you don't go very often, so it's hard, the pages are sticking together, right? But you're there, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They shall not teach, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that, it waves, it, so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Those last two verses, verses 36 and 37, are really uh, critical to what we're learning today because what Jeremiah was saying, or God through Jeremiah, is that when the sun, moon, and stars cease to exist, then the nation of Israel will cease to exist. In other words, it ain't happening, okay? And then he goes on, he talks about when the heavens and the earth can be accurately measured and fully explored, then the nation of Israel will be discarded by God. In other words, it ain't gonna happen. God's point is that his chosen nation will exist forever, why? because he promised to never forsake them or abandon them. We know this new covenant was announced by Jesus Christ to his 12 disciples when he initiated the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night before he was crucified. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Luke records he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Providential, right? This morning, we're going to be celebrating the new covenant together as we take communion. And so that small band of Jewish fishermen and tax collectors were the first to experience the effects of the new covenant along with the 3,000 Jews who were later saved at Pentecost. And, and uh, we sitting here today are, are uh, participating in the partial fulfillment of that new covenant as new covenant believers, as Christians. Tragically, however, the majority of Jews in Jesus' day failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And they refused to repent of their sin and to place their faith in him alone for salvation. And this remained true in Paul's day, and it continues to this day. And so for those of us who who live in the New Testament era of the church, 
which is predominantly made up of Gentiles, it would be very natural for us to assume that since the Jews rejected his son Jesus, God has rejected them. He's cast them aside forever. They're no no longer on God's radar. And all the promises that he made to them are now directed towards us and apply to us. And I'm sure you're aware of this, that there are godly, sincere Christians who believe and teach that God is finished with Israel and that the church has replaced Israel. In fact, that the way they communicate it is they say that the church is the new Israel. Well, granted, we have uh, learned and we saw this as recently as last week that Jesus told the Jewish people in Matthew 21, 43, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And so Israel has been set aside and the church has been raised up and entrusted with the privilege and the responsibility of being God's witness agent in the world. The church is to be and do what Israel was meant to be and do. But that doesn't mean that the church is Israel. And while there are many similarities between Israel and the church, and and you look at, you know, like Peter, for example, applies Old Testament titles that were originally given to the nation of Israel, and now he applies them to the church, you might think, oh, you might conclude, oh, well, the church is the new Israel. Well, well, there's a lot of similarities between the, the church and Israel, but there's also a lot of differences. And there are enough differences to keep the church and Israel distinct from each other. I guess the simplest way to say it is we are like the church, or excuse me, we are, the church is like Israel, but the church is not Israel. We're like Israel, but we're not Israel. William MacDonald, uh, a great commentator, um, I know a number of you have this one-volume commentary, this one-volume commentary, Believer's Bible Commentary. This is what he said, quote, Israel and the church are separate and distinct entities, And an understanding of this distinction is one of the most important keys to interpreting the prophetic word. Israel was God's chosen earthly people from the time of the call of Abraham to the coming of the Messiah. The nation's rebellion and faithlessness reached its awesome climax when Christ was nailed to the cross. Because of this crowning sin, God temporarily set aside Israel as his chosen people. During the present age, God has a new people, the church. This church age forms a parenthesis in God's dealings with Israel. When the parenthesis is closed, that is, when the church is caught away to heaven, speaking of the rapture, God will resume his dealings with Israel. So simply stated, God is not done with Israel. There is a future for the Jews. In fact, their best days are still to come. And no other passage in the New Testament speaks more clearly, more directly about the future of Israel than Romans chapter 11. And Paul devoted this entire chapter to providing proof that God hasn't completely or permanently discarded the Jews. And I would submit to you that our text today is the strongest evidence in the New Testament that God still has plans for the nation of Israel. Because in no uncertain terms, Paul stated that there will will come a day when God will restore them and fulfill all his promises of blessing to them and to the entire world through them. And, And this is based on the character of God. This is all based on the character of God. It has nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with the character of God. And so what I want us to see this morning is that in these verses, Paul explained three qualities of God that guarantee the future restoration of Israel. Three qualities of God that guarantee the future restoration of Israel. First of all is the mystery of God. 
The mystery of God, verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now the word that should jump out at you in that verse is the word mystery, which um, is a word that was used in the New Testament to refer to some truth that was hidden in the shadows and the types of the Old Testament, but is now clearly revealed in the New Testament. Turn over to the last chapter of Romans, and Paul uses this term again, verse 25. This is Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul expands on this concept of the mystery, and in Ephesians chapter three, he was talking about the church, this, um, this, this, this new body of believers that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles that wasn't seen in the Old Testament. It was, it was kind of blurry, you couldn't really figure it out, but now God had revealed it to Paul and it was Paul's duty and responsibility uh, and privilege to reveal it to the New Testament church. And so in chapter three of Ephesians, verse two, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which is given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places." And so another word for the mystery of God, you could actually call it the wisdom of God. In other words, that God's ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than greater than our thoughts, right? He's far beyond us. This is the wisdom of God. There's, there's, there's tons of mystery when it comes to God and his, and his thoughts and his ways and his plans. Now the mystery that Paul was referring to here in Romans 11 was not specifically the same mystery that he was talking about in Ephesians chapter three. The mystery that God used Paul to reveal here is the partial hardening of the Jews, which was all part of God's plan to extend salvation to the Gentiles, which would make the Jews jealous when they saw the Gentiles enjoying the blessings and the promises that he had originally given to them and and hopefully the plan is to woo them back to him. And, and that's something that you could never really see if all you had was the Old Testament. You couldn't see this coming. <laughs> In fact, somebody asked me this week a great question. I don't get it. Why did God harden the nation of Israel? Kind of scratching your head going, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Well, guess what? The simple answer to that question is, I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's all part of God's plan and the wisdom of his plan. Uh, he included that. But, but we know, well, Paul specifically says one of the reasons here, this mystery, he wanted us to know the mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, Paul wanted to put us Gentiles in our place by explaining our place in God's plan of salvation. He didn't want Gentile believers looking down their noses at the Jews as if somehow we were better than them because 
you know, we'd receive Christ and they rejected Christ. We shouldn't be congratulating ourselves or patting ourselves on the back as if we are better because we responded to the gospel. You can't take credit for your salvation, right? None of us earned it, none of us deserved it. And so he says, I want to tell you about this mystery. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want this to be clear so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. What, Paul? What is it that will humble us? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. We've already seen this in, earlier in this chapter, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were what? Hardened. And we talked about this when we looked at verse 7, that this hardening is like uh, having your heart covered with a big old callus. That, that you become dull, you become insensitive to spiritual things. And this hardening of Israel's heart, if you will, is an act of judgment on Israel for not recognizing and receiving Jesus as their Messiah and continuing to rely on their own works rather than faith for salvation. And so God has simply handed them over to their own stubbornness. We learned about that in Romans chapter one. God gives us over, right, when we rebel against him. In chapter nine, which this is the chapter that launched this whole discussion on the role of Israel, the, the, the past, present, and future of Israel and God's plan, uh, in, in chapter nine, verse 17, Paul uses the example of Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. In other words, God is God and he can do whatever he wants. He can have mercy on you or he can harden you. And who are we to question him? Verse 19, you will say then to me, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? Well, this hardening, this judicial hardening of Israel, we've been learning, is not total because there's still a remnant, right? There's a chosen remnant. There are uh, Jewish people today who, who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. They've embraced him. They've received him. Uh, he is their personal Lord and Savior. Um, they're they're, they're you know, born-again Jews, if you will, um, uh, Jewish Christians. Um, there, there, there's, there's, there's a plenty of them out there. So it's not total, but what Paul is getting at now is not only is it not total, it's not final. This hardening is not final. Notice he says that a partial harden, hardening has happened to Israel, what's the next word? Until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has partially and temporarily hardened the majority of the Jewish people, which is all part of his wise and merciful plan to include the Gentiles in salvation. And we talked about that, that, that this week. We are the dogs, the Gentile dogs who are sitting under the table just thankful for the crumbs that are dropping down. The question is, what is this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in? Well, this simply means when all the Gentiles that God has chosen for salvation have, have come to faith in Christ. Matthew 24, 14, very fascinating verse. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. When will that be? When will the end come? When will Jesus come back? We don't know, other than the fact, from his own word, from his own lips, he said, well, it's not until the whole world hears the gospel. 
And so, by the way, if you are wanting Jesus to come back quicker, sooner than later, well, then get involved in evangelism missions. Get, get, get involved in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth because that's what he's waiting for. He's wanting to give every, he's being patient. He wants to give time for all those that he's chosen for salvation to hear the gospel and to respond. And so when that last member of the church, that last Gentile believer is converted, when the body of Christ is complete, Christ will return and the church will be raptured and then God will once again focus his sole attention on the nation of Israel and restore them to himself. Now I just threw in there a lot of eschatology, okay? You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're making a lot of, drawing a lot of conclusions there, making a lot of assumptions. Yeah, that's the book of Daniel. That's the book of Revelation all rolled up into a sentence or two, okay? So... I get it, and some of you are scratching your head going, wait a minute, I need some more evidence of that. Well, we don't have time this morning to get into all of it, but again, trying to um, bring together all the prophecy of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, this is, I think, the best way to understand, the simplest way to understand uh, the future plan of God for the nations, the Gentiles, and also for the nation of Israel. And so, again, this is part of the mystery of God. Prophecy is part of the mystery of God. And so we have here, first of all, the first guarantee that Israel will be restored in the future is the mystery of God, the mystery of God, the wisdom of God. Secondly, we have the fidelity of God, the fidelity of God or the faithfulness of God, the integrity of God. Notice what Paul goes on to say, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So we're talking about the fidelity of God here, the faithfulness of God here. And so he says, and so Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. So what he said was a high probability in verses 23 and 24. Remember last week, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were to cut off if you were cut off from what is a, by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Talking about how it's way easier to, to graft the branches that were broken off, the, 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 the Israelites that were broken off, they can just be grafted back in way easier than you being a wild branch were grafted in uh, to them. And so he goes from a high probability to absolute certainty. He said, and so all Israel, he doesn't say might be saved. He said they will be saved. Now, the word here that everything kind of hinges on and how we understand what Paul was saying here is the word Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. Some believe that term Israel refers to the church or the one people of God composed of both Jews and Gentiles. So in other words, all the elect people from all time, Jews and Gentiles, they're all gonna be saved. Well, Paul did refer to the church as the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. And he did explain how God has abolished the distinction between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 22, that there's this new group. Um, There's no longer Jews, there's no longer Gentiles, it's just the church. And he describes that in Ephesians chapter 2. But the problem with reading those passages back into this passage and spiritualizing this use of the word Israel 
in this particular verse is you have to give it a different meaning, meaning than it has in the rest of the chapter. Everywhere else, Israel, Israel is used, the word Israel is used in chapters 9 through 11. It clearly refers to ethnic Israel. In other words, it's referring to the Jews. It's not, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't include the Gentiles. So to all of a sudden say, well, this time it, it includes the Gentiles, no. He's still talking about ethnic Israel here. It means the same thing. And as we've already seen earlier in our study of Romans, all Israel doesn't mean every individual Jew, but the Jews as a whole ethnic group in contrast to the present remnant, okay? So in other words, Paul wasn't referring to every Jew who ever lived is gonna get saved. He's talking about the elect Jews living at the time of Christ's return. And again, trying to synthesize a biblical prophecy, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, I would submit to you that during the Great Tribulation, Many Jews will come to know Christ through the 144,000 witnesses, right? Remember that? Revelation chapter 7. Then there will be two witnesses um, who will end up being killed and they'll come back to life, right? In chapter 11, Revelation 11. And then there's also going to be an angel in the sky. Revelation 14 talks about this angel is going to be flying around sharing the gospel and telling people to repent. And so talk about preparing the soil right? Prepping people's hearts for Jesus to come back. And as you know, Israel, halfway through uh, the tribulation, they have made a treaty with a ruler that promises to protect them, and he turns on them and begins to persecute them and, and try to destroy them. And so after the, at the end of the seven years of great tribulation, who comes back? Their Messiah, Jesus. True to his word, you're messing with the apple of my eye, and I'm coming to mess with you. And so Jesus comes back, and he returns to earth to defend and deliver Israel. And that's when they'll recognize him as their Messiah. And there'll be this national revival marked by mourning and repentance and cleansing and forgiveness and restoration According to Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son, they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They'll recognize we killed our Messiah. Here he is, he's come back. We're not gonna make that same mistake twice. I love what Luke records in Luke 13, the words of Jesus as he was approaching Jerusalem, getting ready to present himself, if you will, as the Messiah, knowing that they would reject him and call for his crucifixion. This is what he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those to set, that center." Those sent to her, excuse me, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I love that phrase, until the time comes. Right? I'm going to leave you desolate until I return and you see me for who I really am and you say, sincerely, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not just fawning, you know, throwing branches down in front of my little donkey, you know, and acting like you think I am the Messiah and then a week later turning and telling them to kill me, telling the Romans to kill me, right? No, this is going to be genuinely and sincerely. You're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our Messiah. And at that time, again, synthesizing New Testament prophecy, the book of Revelation, at the time, Jesus will set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and reign in righteousness for a thousand years, and the entire world will be blessed with peace and prosperity and 
will receive the blessing, right, that God promised that the nation of Israel would be. Paul quoted two Old Testament passages here which describe this monumental event. He says, first of all, he quotes Isaiah 59, 20, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. By the way, this is a clear reference to Christ's second coming because since he initially, he didn't come to Zion or Jerusalem, where did he come? To Bethlehem, right? So when Christ returns, he's coming to Jerusalem. The second verse he quotes is Isaiah 27, 9. He says, this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. And so uh, notice the language here. He says he will remove ungodliness from Jacob when I take away their sins. I think that, that ungodliness removed and sins taken away or forgiven is a great definition of salvation, isn't it? Jeremiah 31, 34, we already read this. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We don't have time to look at it, but Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 through 33, that's another reference to the new covenant in the words of Ezekiel. Talks about the same thing, about our sins being forgiven. But notice what he goes on to say here. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So when the Jews rejected Christ, they became the enemies of God. But in doing so, the good news of the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. But at the same time, notice Paul says, they're beloved. The Jews are loved by God based on the unconditional, eternal promises that he made to the fathers. For this, notice he says, for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, I love God's description of his choice of Israel. The Lord did not let, set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep keeps his commandments. And so it may seem like an oxymoron, but the Jews are the beloved enemies of God. That's what Paul said. They're the beloved enemies of God. And like any loving father, God is disciplining his children in order to lead them to repentance and what? Restoration. That's where this whole thing is going. And that's one of the reasons why the Jews have had to endure so much persecution and hostility uh, against them. It's part of God's discipline for them rejecting his son. But again, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. You, don't, you know, a, a loving dad doesn't just beat his kid for the fun of it. You deserved it. No, he's got a purpose in spanking his child it's so that he would be restored. It would lead him to repentance. He wants to get right with him. He wants him to be, to, to be restored in his fellowship with him. And that's what God's doing with the nation of Israel. And just like our kids, will always be our kids, no matter what they do or don't do. Israel will always be God's kids, God's chosen people, no matter what they do or don't do. Paul, Paul uh, mentioned that, hinted at that in Romans chapter 3, verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? God's like, I don't care if they don't believe. I'm still going to be faithful to my promise. And notice he says in verse 29 here in chapter 11, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's already mentioned the gifts in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. 
the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever, amen. So those are the gifts and those gifts are irrevocable. In other words, God's not an Indian giver. God doesn't go back on his promises. He's always true to his word. That's the calling, the calling of God. In other words, his choosing, his electing of Israel as his chosen people. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it's impossible for God to lie. So listen, the reason why I believe and teach that there is a future for Israel is all the promises of blessing that God made to Israel throughout the Old Testament have yet to be fulfilled. And if we hold to a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the scriptures, if all the promises of cursing that God made to Israel have been literally fulfilled, and have they? Absolutely. Then why wouldn't we also believe that all the promises of blessing that he made will be literally fulfilled as well? And by the way, if you didn't realize this, we got a little preview of Israel's future restoration when they regained their status as a nation back in 1948. And as one commentator said, I think I appreciate his insight, he said, dispersion and separation from the land is the repeated mark of God's judgment for Israel's disobedience, right? Throughout the whole Old Testament, whenever they disobeyed, what did he do? Somebody came in, destroyed their, their, their cities, tore down their walls, burned the temple, and took them out of, this, out of the land of Israel, right? And the restoration of the land is the mark of God's grace to the nation. God is up to something presently with the nation of Israel. I think that was the first step, right? God's showing grace and mercy, bringing the nation of Israel back to his land, back to their land, preparing for their future restoration. And I don't know about you, whenever I hear anything on the news related to the nation of Israel, like, for example, the treaty that Trump is working on right now with the Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, hopefully that piques your interest because whatever's going on there. It's a lot more than just two presidents or leaders of nations trying to sort things out. We know that they are, what, pawns. According to Daniel, God raises up leaders and he takes down leaders. He's raised up these leaders for such a time as this to accomplish his purposes to continue to move Israel forward towards their future restoration. And then just quickly, lastly here, the, the third quality of God that ensures or guarantees that there's a future for Israel. Notice the mercy of God. The mercy of God, verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, and because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Anybody wanna guess what's on Paul's mind right there in those few verses? God's mercy. And he's summarizing the, all that he's been talking about, this whole Jew-Gentile thing in these last three chapters. He's bringing it down to one thing, and that is the mercy of God. What is mercy? Some of you have the gift of mercy. It's a spiritual gift, by the way. Some of you have to get the mercy. You you know what the mercy is. Mercy is seeing someone in need and having a desire to meet that need. Well, man's greatest need is to be brought, brought back from death to life, to have our sins forgiven. And guess what? God sees us in our need and he wants to meet that need. Another way to define mercy would be compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within our power to punish or harm. That we choose to have mercy on them. In other words, we don't give them what they, what? Deserve. That's mercy, not getting what we deserve. And and guess what? This doesn't just apply 
to the Jews. This doesn't just apply to the Gentiles. Paul, in summary fashion, just rolls us all together. Verse 32, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. In other words, Jews and Gentiles at the end of the day are in the same exact predicament. We are shut up in sin like a fish in a net or like an animal in a trap or like a criminal in a prison. And God ordained that we would all be born in sin and be bound for hell. Why? Not that he's the author of sin, but he allowed us to pursue sin. Why? So he could receive glory by putting on display his mercy in dealing with our sinful disobedience. If there was no disobedience, there would be no need or no opportunity for God to show off his mercy. And so God uses the the disobedience of some to make the gospel flow to others. And then he causes the same mercy to flow back to those who originally disobeyed and And don't think that Paul was teaching universalism here. Oh, at the end of the day, we're all going to get mercy. None of us are going to get what we deserve. Paul was simply saying that God brings all kinds of people to Christ by all means possible here. As one S. Lewis Johnson said it best, Paul refers to all without distinction, not all without exception. He's saying this isn't just for the Jews. This isn't just for the Gentiles. This is for everybody. And so whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, we all have one thing in common. We're all trapped in sin. We're headed to hell. And God mercifully intervened by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place, to endure God's wrath against our sin so we can be forgiven and rescued from death and hell and not get what we deserve, but instead get grace, that's getting what we don't deserve, and that's spending eternity in heaven if we respond in repentance and faith. Salvation is not based on our merit, It's based on God's mercy. Paul knew it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul wanted Titus to know it. Titus chapter three, verse five, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And Peter knew it. First Peter chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. I want to invite the men who are going to be serving us to come now. And let me just pray as they come and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we're grateful for your mercy, which you displayed to us through the new covenant in your blood, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, which we're about to remember and celebrate. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with with wonder at the mystery of your plan of salvation and, and, and your faithfulness to not just the people of Israel, but even to us. You've been so faithful to keep your word, to keep your promises. And, and Lord, that we would just be overwhelmed with gratitude for your mercy. That you didn't just... Uh, Let us keep going down the path of sin to hell, but you chose to rescue us, to have compassion on us, and to save us 
from sin, death, and hell. Lord, I pray that you would be honored, that Christ would be exalted as we remember the great sacrifice he made, which was ultimately a demonstration of your mercy towards us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.